Welcome to Slim and Satisfied, a podcast about weight loss for women dealing with hormonal imbalances. I'm Daphna Chazen, registered dietitian and weight loss coach, and I invite you to join me weekly for conversations, practical strategies, and resources that will lead you on the right path to feeling satisfied with your body and your life. And now, let's get to today's episode. Hey there, and welcome back. This is episode number 29 of the Slim and Satisfied podcast, and I'm your host, Daphna Chazen. If you're new to me, I'm a registered dietitian and women's health expert. I specialize in weight management and helping women with PCOS find a healthy path and heal their body. And today we're talking about five PCOS nutrition tips that you should ignore. And this is a continuation of last week's episode. Well, sort of a continuation. It's inspired by the same messages and things that I've been seeing on social media and mostly some of the misinformation that we see out there and how problematic I think it is because it's so confusing and so overwhelming for many, many women. And I can tell you that I experienced this myself being an expert in this field. I feel like I can sort through information But sometimes it's hard even for me. Sometimes I feel like what I see out there and the things that are being communicated are really more harmful than helpful. So I wanted to come up uh, on the podcast today and talk about some nutrition myths that you may see out there that are kind of disguised as helpful, reliable, credible information, but it really isn't. So if you're not sure who to trust and whose advice to follow, I want you to take a listen to today's episode because I hope it's going to help to sort out some of the misinformation that is out there. And at the end of the day, the most important thing is for you to find what works for you. It's not for you to follow some guru. It's not for you to follow an influencer. It's not for you to follow someone who has seen results from themselves with things that are not relevant to your life, to your lifestyle, and are not things that you can keep going forever. So you always want to follow things that are going to be sustainable, and that is the most important thing. Of course, it needs to be healthy. Of course, it needs to be healing for your body and managing your PCOS. But at the end of the day, it's your life. You need to be able to wake up every day and not feel like it's a drag to stay healthy, not feel like it's a chore to stay healthy, but rather feel like you're excited about it, you're empowered to do it, and you want to do it. You're actually enjoying it. So the first thing that I want to talk about, and this is such a common one, is related to carbohydrates. So because PCOS is a condition where women have elevated blood sugar and insulin resistance, we hear a lot about carbs when it comes to PCOS. And one of the biggest misconceptions is around fruit. So if you ever heard that you shouldn't be eating fruit because it contains sugar or that you should be eliminating all forms of sugar, whether it's added sugar in a Snicker bar or fruit, which has, of course, naturally occurring sugar, I want to tell you that that is simply not true. I have worked with many women, dozens of women who lost weight, healed their body, got their health on the right track by eating fruit as part of their plan. So they're not sitting there eating bowls of fruit all day long. Of course, we don't want to do that. We want to be reasonable and moderate with everything, but you don't have to eliminate fruit altogether. 
And I really think it's a shame that fruit's been demonized in that way. But of course, one of the reasons that it's gotten a bad rep is because of sugar. So what I want to tell you about sugar is two different things. The first thing about fruit sugar, which is called fructose, and that's the naturally occurring sugar in fruit, is that it actually behaves a little bit differently in your body. And that is the reason why Sugar is not sugar, right? It's not all the same. So you want to be very, very aware of that and understand that fructose, which is the the main type of sugar that we see in fruit, actually doesn't raise blood sugar as much as regular table sugar, and that's one of the biggest benefits in it. Now, we also know of high fructose corn syrup, of course, which is another type of sugar It's not the same as the sugar that's naturally occurring in fruit. That is a chemically engineered type of fructose that is added to things and is added to processed foods. That's not what we're talking about. But the fruit fruit sugar that you consume when you eat a piece of fruit like apple or berries or bananas is naturally occurring fructose that doesn't raise blood sugar to the same degree that a sugary juice would, for example. So there's a big difference between eating an apple and drinking apple juice, right? So that's not the same thing. You're not getting the same benefits, partly because the apple juice is gonna have more added sugar, which is not fructose. It's what we call sucrose. That's another type of sugar, and that's table sugar, essentially. That's the kind of stuff you add to coffee or to cakes and things like that. And the fruit the fruit juices, various fruit juices, all the types do have added sugar in the form of sucrose. So that's going to add more uh, to your blood sugar. That's going to raise blood sugar. But eating an apple won't necessarily have the same effect because the type of sugar in a natural apple that hasn't been processed and made into a juice is different. The other reason that fruit has a benefit is that, of course, Even though it's got the sugar, it's got fructose in it, it has fiber in it as well. And it has minerals and vitamins from the skin of the fruit and from the flesh of the fruit that we don't get in other processed fruit products. So when we're looking at eating fruit, we want to eat fruit that is not processed, that is in its natural form and is not going to go through any sort of processing or um, changing of, of how it's on the market, right? So we want the whole fruit. It could be cut up, of course, but we don't want fruit juices. We don't want canned fruit. We don't want things like apple sauces or things like that. That's not the same thing. It doesn't have the vitamins. It's not going to have the same amount of fiber, and it's going to have other added sugars incorporated into it. The benefit of the fiber is that, that it's really mitigating the effect of that fructose, the naturally occurring fructose. So it's going to make the the food get absorbed more slowly. When we have fiber in food, it's going to stay in the gut for a little bit longer. And that is a benefit because it's going to be more filling. Another example that you can think about is volume. The reason that I don't like to recommend fruit that has been processed, even if it's something like raisins, is the volume, right? So raisins are, of course, grapes that have been dehydrated. And when you think about a cup of grapes and a cup of raisins, Those two things may be the same volume, right? I'm eating the same amount. I'm eating a cup of each, but the cup of raisins is going to have three or four times the calories because we took out all the water. So now I'm losing a lot of the volume of the water and I'm eating a more dense calorie food, right? I'm eating a more calorically dense food. 
So you want to think about volume. The water content of fruit is super helpful for satiety, for fullness. So when we're eating fruit, we want to make sure that we're getting the fiber. The highest fiber fruit are things like pears, apples, all types of berries, as well as citrus. But you can definitely go for what's considered higher sugar fruit like bananas and pineapple. That is totally okay. You're still getting the vitamins. You're getting the volume. You're getting a lot of water, which is good. It's filling. And then, of course, your vitamins and minerals. So these are all wonderful benefits of fruit. You do not need to avoid it. The one thing, or two things rather, that you could do to make sure that you're eating fruit correctly and you're incorporating in a smart way is the first thing is to portion it properly, right? So we're looking for about a cup of fruit per serving. So if you're gonna eat fruit twice a day, which is usually what I recommend, you wanna eat the right amount. So it's either a medium piece of fruit or a cup of cut up fruit. And the other thing is you want to pair it, meaning you want to combine it with something that's not a carbohydrate. So you never, for example, want to eat oatmeal and fruit together. That's too many carbohydrates in one sitting. A different way to pair it would be if you ate fruit with nuts or fruit with a low-fat string cheese. Now you're pairing it with a protein or a healthy fat, and you're going to get more mileage out of it. You're not going to be hungry soon after you eat it. So if you love fruit, go ahead. You have my permission to eat fruit twice a day. Just be smart about it. Portion it out properly and make sure you're pairing it with either a protein or a source of a healthy fat. All right, moving on to the second myth is eat all the fat that you want. This is a big one because with keto and with the kind of glorification of things like coconut oil and butter and all things fat, there's a problem, right? So we still need to watch fat. We still want to make sure that we're not overdoing it on any specific type of fat. And what I'm what I am going to say is that we used to think that fat is the cause of all evil, right? So of course we now know that's not true and we actually want to eat fat and there's no problem in consuming it as part of your day in most meals and at good amounts. What we do wanna pay attention to is the type of fat that we consume. And we wanna make sure that we're not taking in excessive amounts of saturated fats from things like cheese and mayonnaise and high fat meats, things that are processed like sausages and pastries, baked goods. These are often things that contain a lot of saturated fat. So if you look at baked goods, they're gonna have lard or shortening. These are the types of fats that we don't want to overdo it on. We want to limit them. And I know a lot of people in the keto community are going to be up in arms about this, but I'm a big believer that you can eat fat, you can incorporate saturated fat, but watch out for excessive amounts. Most of the fat that you eat shouldn't come from saturated foods, fat foods. It should come from from unsaturated, mostly monounsaturated fat. So I'm going to talk about what that is. But when we think about watching out for fat, especially saturated fat, we're thinking about inflammation and we're thinking about insulin resistance because these are fats that are going to make both of those things worse. And there are studies that show that when we eat too much saturated fat, it actually makes the body release more chemicals that trigger inflammation and that trigger hormonal imbalances. So some of the big studies out there are showing that 
Insulin resistance is actually less related to carbohydrates and more related to the type of fat that we eat. So when we eat a lot of saturated fat, it actually disrupts the action of insulin even further, and it makes our body more insulin resistant, which is not what we want with PCOS because to begin with, at baseline, we're already struggling with insulin resistance. So we wanna make insulin work the best possible way and not interrupt its function even more by eating these saturated fats. So my approach is that I like to focus on what things to add as opposed to eliminate. So I talk very little about not having saturated fat unless I see someone eating excessive amounts of cheese in their day or having too many servings of beef throughout the week, things like hamburgers or steak. Those are all things that are gonna be super high in saturated fat. We don't want multiple servings of that in a day. But what I do focus on instead of limiting is adding more. So we're gonna add more mono and polyunsaturated fats. So these are things like nuts and seeds, as well as healthy fats from avocados, olives, olive oil, and fatty fish like salmon and trout. So these are things, if you're gonna eat a fatty meal in your day, I have no problem taking a salad or taking a protein and adding things like avocado or adding things like nut butters to it, for example, to your breakfast. So if you're having oatmeal, you can add nut butters or chopped nuts or seeds. I have no problem with that. Things like sesame paste, like tahini, cooking vegetables in a good amount of olive oil. These are all things that I do recommend because fat is satisfying. When we eat a fattier meal, the mouthfeel is more satisfying. We're gonna stay fuller for longer and it's of course delicious. So we wanna add more mono and polyunsaturated fats and stay aware of things like cheese, mayo, a lot of butter, a lot of baked goods, as well as processed meats like sausages and things like ribs and beef. So while we don't want to be fat phobic, right, we don't want to be afraid of eating fat, I also don't agree with the recommendation to just eat all the fat that you want and make sure that you're getting all the saturated fat in your day and steaks and all kinds of things like cream cheese. This is bad advice for women with PCOS. It's going to make insulin resistance worse. And especially if you're combining this with a moderate carbohydrate diet. So sometimes I see people who take the keto advice, but not implement it fully. So if you're going to follow keto and eat a high fat diet, follow keto. I don't agree with it and I don't like it and I don't, I don't think it works. But if you want to do it, go ahead and do it. But here's the thing. What I don't want you to do is take some parts of keto, like eating fattier meats or eating more amounts of fat in your day but then also eating some carbs because that's gonna be a very bad combination for you, metabolically speaking. You're gonna see weight gain, you're gonna see more insulin resistance and likely more androgens, more of the male hormones, which are triggering a lot of the symptoms of PCOS like hair growth, acne, hair loss, and things like that. So make sure that when you see someone recommending eating more fat, you understand fully what it means. You want to add more fat, but you want to add the right type of fat and not just add it all across the board. All right, good. Moving on to the next myth, and that is cover your basis or fill in the gaps with supplements. This is a common one. It's a common recommendation that I hear all the time where people think that if they take a supplement, they're covered. They're kind of making sure that they're getting the nutrients so they don't have to pay as much attention to their, their diet. And this is a very common myth. And I see a lot of experts push so many supplements on people. And these are things that are totally unnecessary. Of course, they're expensive. And sometimes they even interact with each other. So you don't necessarily want to take supplements 
just because. You want to understand exactly what the supplement is doing for you and not just taking it to cover your basis or just in case I miss eating a salad for a couple days, I'm going to cover my basis with this multivitamin. That's not what you want to do. A supplement regimen should do so much more for you than fill in the gaps. And the way that I see it, it's really a way to optimize your health and actually put the finishing touches on what someone is already doing. So if you're already eating fairly well and you're on track, eating a good, healthy, balanced diet that's minimally processed 80% of the time, more power to you and go on with your bad self. Don't worry about the other 20%. You can already get plenty of benefit from your diet But if you're still struggling with maybe digestive issues or maybe mood swings or something like acne or ovulation, fertility, missing periods, these are the things that you may have already maximized the benefit of the diet. You want to add a supplement. A supplement can help dial it in even more. It's not good to use a supplement to fill in the gaps. Use it to optimize. Use it to put the finishing touches on what you're already doing with your diet. There are certain things that we can't accomplish with food. And as a dietitian, that's a hard thing for me to say because I think food can heal so many different things. But especially with women with PCOS, when we struggle with so many different symptoms and there's a lot of different things going on, sometimes the diet can only do so much. And that's when a supplement can come in handy. So it's not necessarily replacing any holes or any gaps in the diet. It's actually helping to optimize, to make your body process nutrients better, to make your body metabolize the food better. So these are the things that can be beneficial with a supplement, but it's not necessarily going to replace the diet. So Sometimes we have certain enzymes or hormones that are not responding well or that are not functioning the proper way. We can help those enzymes work better. We can help those hormones get balanced quickly with a supplement. So for example, magnesium. Magnesium is a, is a nutrient that most women get enough of in their diet, but sometimes we need to supplement it if someone's dealing with symptoms that we're not able to control just through a good, healthy diet. So for example, if someone's struggling with mood swings or with constipation or with something like insomnia, magnesium can actually help with all three of these things. So sometimes the extra supplement, taking it from an external source and not necessarily from the diet, taking it in a pill form or a liquid form can really help optimize what we're doing. So it can help someone sleep better, which of course feeds into a whole host of other healthy behaviors. So when someone sleeps better, they're going to feel more energized, more rested. They're going to have less cravings the following day. So these are all cyclical things that we want to take care of. And this is why it's not just about the food. It's about lifestyle as well. So things like stress management, sleep, and making sure that you're getting enough good nutrition through the diet and the supplements is going to make the whole transformation a whole lot quicker and easier for you. So before you start on a supplement regimen, make sure that you understand what it is that you're hoping the supplement would do for you. Have you already tried doing this same thing with your diet? So if your diet is not fully optimized yet, I would do that first. Don't rely on a supplement to just fill in the gaps for you. Make sure your diet is dialed in. 
And then you can add a supplement to just optimize, put those finishing touches on what you're already doing, but do consult a health expert. Make sure that you're getting the best quality supplements and that your regimen has been tailored to your needs and approved by a healthcare professional. So just be careful with any big promises or magical pills that people are promoting out there and making sure that you understand that, again, what worked for someone else may not work for you. And you want to be very intentional with supplements and understand what they can do for you, as well as what are some of the side effects. I did a whole episode on some of the most common supplements that women with PCOS have seen great results with. That's a great place to start. So again, I don't recommend it because there's not a one-size-fit-all approach with supplements, but that's a great place to start to kind of learn and understand what are some of the different supplements doing in your body. Next myth I want to talk about is a big one, and that is that gluten is inflammatory and should be completely avoided with PCOS. So let me just start by saying that there is really no evidence, no good research, none of the studies that have done have been done in this area showed that gluten is inflammatory in general and for women with PCOS. So it doesn't really attack your system. It doesn't really slip through the cracks of your intestinal tracts and tract and all of these things that we hear on social media and in some of the blogs. There are some cases where it's necessary to avoid gluten, and that would, of course, be properly diagnosed gluten intolerance or celiac disease. So if that's the case for you, yes, you should be avoiding gluten, and you're probably going to feel a lot better when you do so. But the reasons that I don't like to just come out with a blank blanket statement to my clients and say everybody should avoid gluten is that... First of all, it's very restrictive, right? So you're going to have to avoid many of the things that people eat and can actually offer health benefits. So you could get health benefits from eating things like pasta or bread. You can get fiber from different sources of food that do contain gluten. So I don't like to eliminate entire food groups where we don't have the research, we don't have the evidence to support it. We don't really know that gluten is inflammatory. We don't really know that in order to come out and say everybody should be doing it. Case-by-case basis, yes, we can evaluate and see if that would make sense for you. But avoiding gluten doesn't necessarily mean that you're eating healthier. And that, I think, is part of why there's a big misconception about it is that if you've cut out bread and you've cut out pasta and you've cut out baked goods that contain gluten, but you replace them with things like French fries and fried rice and mashed potatoes and vegan cupcakes that are gluten-free, that doesn't make you any healthier. You're eating gluten-free, but you're still taking in too many carbohydrates, you're still taking in too much sugar, and you're not necessarily getting more vitamins and minerals and all of the good things that a good healthy diet should contain. So gluten in and of itself is rarely a problem. Again, unless there's a diagnosed medical condition or or you've kept records and you've worked with someone to really identify gluten as a source of your issues, I rarely see that as the case. I have so many women with PCOS who are my clients and are eating gluten and are kicking butt. They're losing weight, they're feeling better, their acne has cleared up. So I really just don't see any evidence in my practice and in the science around it that gluten is a problem. So you don't want to over-restrict yourself unless you have to. Why would you ever want to cut out all these foods and make an effort and spend money and time and energy on following a gluten-free lifestyle where, in fact, it's not necessarily necessary? You could see the exact same results and even better results 
with including gluten in your day. And last but not least, I want to talk about a very common myth that's out there, and that is eating smaller meals more frequently is beneficial for weight loss with PCOS. So these are recommendations that are not just for PCOS. We see this out there a lot, and some of the people that are recommending this are saying that it helps manage blood sugar, it's going to help rev your metabolism, so you're eating smaller meals all throughout the day as opposed to the traditional three meals per day. Here's what I've been experiencing with this because I did try it, and this is a recommendation that I used to give, and I would work with people to make it fit into their lifestyle. And what I found is that it simply does not work for most people. First of all, biologically speaking, we do not need to eat so close together. We do not need to eat every two to three hours. That is too soon. Your metabolism is not being changed by this eating pattern. There's no studies, no evidence to show that it's revving really anything. The only thing that it's doing is it's constantly giving your body more food to digest and more food to break down, which really doesn't leave much time for the body to be using up this food for energy. So most of us are not so active during the day that we need the constant supply of calories and energy. And what ends up happening is that the body's just storing all of this as fat. It's never using it up for energy because there's more and more coming in all throughout the day. The other issue that often comes up is that if you're going to follow a pattern like this of four to six smaller meals in your day, these meals truly have to be smaller. And most of us are not proficient. We're not as skilled as we think we are in adjusting the meals down. So we end up eating more or less the same amount of food and calories in the day, just more times. And that often leads to weight gain, not weight loss. So the other reason is that there's more involvement in food. So there's more food decisions that you have to make. If you now have to think about what to eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, now you have to think about double the amount of meals. You have to think about food double the amount of times in your day. And that just gives you more temptation, more opportunities to overeat and take it take in extra calories regardless of your hunger, right? So if you're on this pattern and you need to eat every two to three hours, you're gonna be eating more based on the clock than on your body's satiety and hunger signals. So you're not gonna be tuned into your hunger cues and that's a little bit of a problem because the whole purpose of relearning how to eat is to get back in touch with your body and eat based on your hunger, adjusting your food based on hunger and not based on the clock. So I really don't like this pattern of smaller meals. I also don't think that it's necessary for blood sugar control. So if you have issues with low blood sugar dips or things like that, your meals are not large enough. If you're eating a well-balanced meal that contains the right ratios of fats to proteins and carbs and vegetables and all of the good stuff that should be included in a healthy meal, you should be good for four to five hours. Your blood sugar should not dip. I've had so many clients over the years come to me and say, I've tried it all, it doesn't work, my sugar dips, I get hypoglycemic and I feel horrible. And we always, always are able to fix it. We are always able to modify the meal to make it a little bit better so that it holds their blood sugar steady for four or five hours. That is absolutely possible. You do not need to eat in between breakfast and lunch and in between lunch and dinner and in between dinner and bedtime. That is just too many times in your day. I've never seen someone who did this and didn't struggle. It really rarely works. However, 
The one scenario where it really can work, and I think that it's beneficial to add smaller meals in between your larger meals, is if you have a really long day. If you have a day that's 12 hours, say you eat the first thing at 6 a.m. and you don't get home until 6 p.m., that may be a case where you do need to add small snacks, maybe two snacks spaced out in the afternoon. But again, I wouldn't make it a four to six smaller meal pattern. I would make it three meals and then two smaller snacks in the afternoon just to tide you over until you get home. Okay, so let's quickly recap what we talked about today. And I hope that you found this information helpful and that it helped clarify some of the things that you may be seeing online, on social media, or reading about in blogs. There's a lot of misinformation out there. And my goal with today's episode is to help clear some of the confusion make you a more confident eater when it comes to healthy eating for PCOS, and making sure that you're not getting distracted by some of the unfounded, unsubstantiated advice that's giving out so freely on the internet. We can't avoid it, we can't do much about it, but we can definitely educate ourselves with more credible information, and of course, use common sense in order to come up with the right mix of healthy habits that are gonna work for you. Okay, that's it for today's episode. If you like this podcast, I would so greatly appreciate if you took 30 seconds to leave me a review in iTunes. And you can find more tips, strategies, and tricks for healthy eating with PCOS on my social media pages. I'm on both Instagram and Facebook. So come on over there and say hi. I'd love to connect with you. I'll see you again here next week with a new episode. Bye for now.